0: Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on February 29, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Teresa Amato, author of the book Grand Illusion, The Myth of Voter Choice in a Two-Party Tyranny. Teresa was the National Presidential Campaign Manager and in-house counsel for Ralph Nader during his campaigns for president, in 2000 and 2004, and is the first woman to run two high profile presidential campaigns outside the two parties. Teresa graduated from Harvard University with honors in government and economics. She went on to NYU School of Law, attaining her Doctor of Jurisprudence degree in 1989, and then clerked for a federal judge. In 2002, Harvard's Institute of Politics at the John F. Kennedy School of Government named Teresa a fellow. While she was there, she led a seminar entitled Mobilizing for Justice, How to Take on the System and Make a Difference. She is the founder and was the first executive director of the now 25-year-old Citizen Advocacy Center, and she is currently a lawyer at a global law firm. In her book, Grand Illusion, Teresa describes in detail the barriers to entry to the electoral system for third-party and independent candidates based on the arduous task of helping Ralph Nader run for president. This book is a real eye-opener into the dirty and underhanded ways in which the duopoly that is the Democrats and Republicans may defend their turf when encroached upon by anyone who dares to expand the political discourse beyond the major parties. The book provides deep insight into some fundamental flaws in our electoral system that makes it difficult for challengers outside of the two major parties to lessen the grip on power the major parties exercise in this country. Teresa emphasizes that the views she expresses are hers based on her experiences and not that of any entity or organization with which she may be affiliated. Teresa, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening.
1: Thank you, Dan, and thank you to your listeners.
0: Okay, thank, well, you know, I've, um, I'm going to ask you a really huge open-ended question because I read your book, and it uh, frankly was a real eye-opener for me. And um, you, in the book, you identified uh, the the very arduous task of, of positioning Ralph Nader for president uh, an independent person for president. And I have to ask, uh, since this book you published it in 2009, um, have we moved forward at all? In other words, have we made things uh, better, a a more fair election system or have we moved backwards or uh, well, that's the open-ended question. Which way have we moved?
1: Well, I, I'd like to say that we've uh, moved forward. Let me start by thanking the New Press, a a publishing house in New York, for publishing the book. Uh, It took me a while to write it. I was reflecting on both uh, my experiences in the 2000s election and the 2004 election in 2000 Ralph uh, an independent ran on the Green Party ticket and in 2004 he ran as an independent and so uh, the, we had a, an experience running both of those campaigns both uh, primarily on the Green Party ticket and then uh, as an independent having to get on the ballot um, in 50 states uh, as an independent though sometimes Ralph also accepted the nominations of other parties now in terms of moving forward or moving backwards um, uh, uh, I think you mean it in an electoral sense and um, I think that uh, we've moved forward in that people are much more aware of uh, the importance of elections, what can go wrong with them and uh, how hotly contested they are i also think because of social media that more and more people have the opportunity to weigh in directly on what they think about uh, the electoral process um, both positively and negatively and you have uh, far more platforms for uh, people to be able to express their opinion and have a voice in the political process so Uh, societally, I think that's a good thing, that uh, we have facilitated participation of people, be it in the elections or or in other kinds of commentary, but Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the electoral process.
0: Okay. Well, uh, you mentioned uh, social media there, that that has had a very large impact, and... um, Actually, it kind of uh, brings up another question I was going to ask. It. It's a little bit further down the line. I was going to ask you this question, but I might as well ask it now because you, you talk a lot about this, uh, the fourth estate, the media, and um, you, you describe, uh, I think, uh, pretty well and pretty thoroughly how the media is controlled by big business and how they uh, you know, end up doing the bidding for the duopoly uh, rather than speaking with an independent and unbiased voice. Uh, so there's a bit of mistrust in the traditional media and to the point where, you know, our current president calls them the enemy of the people. But I'd like to explore this idea a little bit, because um, you have, uh, as, you, as I said, you express discontent toward the media, but has this level of mistrust gone too far, do you think, um, when when reporters are looked upon as being enemies? or? Um,
1: well, yes, yeah, so the, the level of civil discourse has uh, <laughs> uh, become... Uh, let's let's back up and and start with the idea that uh, the fourth estate has always been present right in mm-hmm. in uh, our politics and and they serve an incredibly important function uh and what has happened though going back to my first um, response to your question is that in some ways we've all become the media and uh, uh, because of that uh, there's no necessarily uh, there's not necessarily a um middle person who's interpreting the news for us but by the same token uh, uh, there's also uh, a compounded problem of people not being able to understand or agree on common facts because of uh, they get their information from particular sources uh there's a lot of disinformation, there's deep fakes, and so you don't have trusted interpreters of what is the news or what is going on. And there's a pendulum swing, I think, happening. And people uh, have either chosen to uh, get their sources of information from uh, particular sets of distributors of that information. Uh, They are not necessarily listening to other distributors of the information, but overall we should have more uh, facilitation of participation in what is the media. Having said that, I don't think it's a good idea to declare anybody the enemy of the people, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. be they a reporter or, or any anybody else. Uh, that's not uh, where the civic discourse should be. On the other hand, you, know, you, you have uh, uh, the possibility for people to understand what is happening and to counter that speech with more speech, which is what uh, elections should be
0: about. Yeah. It's, it is true, though I think you even in the traditional media though you can still get pretty channelized. Um, you know, Fox is uh, traditionally uh, uh, hyper conservative, and CNN tends to be uh, hyper liberal, and so you know you have to sort of pick your channels there. But overall, I think it's a good thing that there are reporters out there or people who are paid to study these issues and and give us their at least their um, interpretation or their um, their take on the things that are going on out there, because otherwise we do get very, very channelized.
1: Well, we're no longer limited to XYZ uh, media organization uh, presenting the news, right? Uh, there is so much more news. The challenge now is uh, how how much time do you have in a day to obtain your information and make your own decisions based on uh, what you have heard. Some people just get their media from one particular source. Others try to read beyond what their own political views are, because uh, oftentimes we have a tendency to self-validate and want to hear somebody spouting back exactly our ideas to us or channeling what the one source or two sources of, uh, of the information that we have the time frame within which to uh, make any decisions. Uh, I'm a fan of reading broadly, listening to different uh, opposing points of view and, and whatnot, but uh, not everybody has the time to be able to do that. Uh, and I think, though, that there's certainly much more opportunity because there's not just three major uh, networks, and there, uh, and you have more and more people who are taking advantage of being on the various social media platforms, be it, YouTube or Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever. Uh, there are ways to communicate directly from people to people without necessarily going through a one particular uh, paid-for source.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you have you do have that that phenomenon as you mentioned, like a, I would call, say, confirmation bias, where you tune into those places that seem to agree with you, and and uh, that can get you pretty channelized and. Um, put you basically inside of an echo chamber. Um, yeah,
1: and and that's, of course, uh, the danger is not allowing in any uh, contrary voices to what may be your worldview or disrupting uh, that sort of validation bias uh, of being obtaining your information from the source of information that's going to reaffirm what you think all the time. So uh, uh, being able to, though, have access to and even participate in be it like you holding your own podcast here right or mm-hmm. uh, people having blogs or uh, being able to produce the media uh, yourself gives all kinds of opportunity for people to participate now uh, it also uh, as I mentioned uh, allows for the possibility of not uh, people not agreeing on a common set of facts
0: yeah well that's what family gatherings are for right thanksgiving <laughs> that gives you the alternate facts right there. Um, I'd like to pivot a little bit here. if we could talk uh again reading your book, you talked a lot about um campaign finance laws and um and maybe this kind of is related to the media in a way because these days uh to be a candidate, you need to raise an enormous amount of money and as you cited in your book uh over the years i'm talking over the decades. Um, the media has gone from, uh, I guess, more or less fair coverage of all the uh, politicians and all the issues to becoming a lot more um, less uh, of fair coverage, I'd say, or less open coverage, less free coverage for the candidates and issues, and more toward the paid advertisement side of it. And that, that being the case, you know, money starts to talk after a while, and so given that we're in that situation right now and given that, you know, campaigns cost lots of money uh, with really no practical ceiling being enforced, um, I mean, do you have any perspective on what we can do to mitigate this problem or how we can motivate our lawmakers to legislate to implement some changes in uh, campaign finance and getting money out of well, politics?
1: Uh There are are several ways uh, that the campaign finance laws could be uh, reformed, and there could be public financing of campaigns. Uh, But I'd like to also look at uh, it from the the barrier to entry perspective in terms of how much does it actually cost to have to be able – to get on the ballot, that's the first threshold, or to have a platform that you can um, that you can influence uh, the elections. I mean, you can influence the election by having your own your own podcast, or you can uh, do so by putting things on the internet. That there's very low barriers to entry, right? But we still have high barriers to entry for candidates to be able to uh, put themselves. Uh, into the discourse by getting on a ballot in various um, states. So if if you're running for president, for example, you have to get on the ballot in all 50 states in the District of Columbia, and each state has a variety of uh, different requirements, and they're all different. (laughs) And and they can range from a filing fee to uh, 1% of the gubernatorial vote or 1% of the presidential vote. And they can have all kinds of curly cues uh, in terms of the size of the paper and uh, who can, how somebody has to sign the petition for um, a, a candidate to get on the ballot, uh, to how, what the time frame in which a circulator of the petition has and the candidate has to get the sufficient number of signatures in order to be able to be recognized by the state. Some states have low barriers to entry and some states have very high barriers to entry. And the cost of being able to collect those signatures or to comply with the fees uh, should, in my view, be relatively low so that everybody who wants to be a candidate uh, has a fair shot at becoming a candidate. I don't think we have a problem of too many candidates being on the ballot. You may have a lot of candidates in the primaries and you might get tired of seeing them all debate. Uh, However, those those are set up by the parties themselves, right? Those rules. Uh, but I'm talking about in the general election, you don't t- tend to see an overwhelming number of candidates on the ballot for, you know, federal office.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that, and if those barriers are lowered, then then hopefully you would get more people competing, but then that runs counter to the people that are already in there that, that uh, want to limit their, con- their their competition and keep the castle yeah. walls high. Yeah.
1: Well, uh and the the problem though as you mentioned is it still does cost a lot of money to buy ads to uh be able to do uh, put put that kind of uh saturation media saturation uh, that a billionaire could come in and do for example uh on the other hand there are there are uh, people who are in the business now of making uh ads that can run on social media for a very low cost and uh, have we fully uh, gotten to the point where uh, people uh, candidates for office can take advantage of that i don 't think so uh, but as a government, when you're looking f- at the federal uh, you know the federal um, uh, government, uh, we have not uh, made it all that easy for different people to participate as candidacies when you compare ourselves to for example other countries that would allow uh, different parties to have financing if they received um, lesser uh, percentages of the vote or encourage minor parties to uh, be able to develop. And so you don't have that kind of facilitation uh, outside of the current campaign finance laws where you get matching funds uh, if you get uh, a certain number of contributions and you comply with the Federal Election Commission's laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very few people, though, over time uh, have been able to avail themselves of that. And, of course, there are other people who don't believe that the federal government should be in the business of financing any candidates.
0: Yeah. Well, either the federal government finances it or some government finances it or... um, Or somebody finances it. Private (laughs) industry of financing. exactly. Right. And that that becomes an issue, though. Um, So speaking of the federal government, you you mentioned in your book that... um, The federal uh, government—and this is, you know, we're going back to 2009, so um, the federal government does not step into ballot access at all and preferring to leave the administration of elections up to the states. And so um, I guess I'm kind of pivoting here to ballot access, but um, isn't isn't that kind of the way the Constitution was set up? And, of course, I'm not a lawyer or anything like that, but wasn't the Constitution sort of set up to— act as a bond between different independent entities rather than as a homogeneous uh, body of ubiquitous laws and, and realize I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here cause I kind of know what your answer is going to be. But, uh, but I'm trying to square that circle in my head. How does the federal government actually step in and start um, um, into the state's business really and start talking about ballot access and, and, um, qualifications for politicians and such.
1: Sure. Well, the, the Constitution left it, uh, by and large, uh, to the, to the states uh, to to run the elections. However, um, you've had for the for mo- much of our history until the beginning of the uh, the 20th century, uh, you, you didn't have the government even involved in printing ballots and distributing them. That was a reform in the early 20th century uh, because the parties originally. Uh, determined who was going to be on their ballot and they printed the ballots in order uh, as a what was viewed at the time as a good government reform uh, the government started stepping in and then started to uh, require various different um, preconditions for becoming a candidate eligible to be on the ballot and so some have you know back in the early 1900s said You have to collect this many signatures or you have to do it by this amount of time or you have to uh, uh, be affiliated with an entity that had – collected so many, or had received a certain percentage of the vote in a prior election. And many didn't even have any procedures for an independent candidate hmm. uh, outside of already established parties. And so then they had to think about, well, uh, what will be the procedures for establishing a new party, or what would be the procedure for allowing for independence? And so over time, you have uh, what is typically the General Assembly in each of the states determining who can and cannot be on the ballot. And those general assemblies have been dominated, for the most part, by the two major parties, right? Mm-hmm. And so the two major parties uh, are not always in favor of allowing uh, for competition uh, against the two major parties because they tend to like predictability. Mm-hmm. And competition introduces an element of unpredictability, which then makes the the campaigns more dicey. And so you don't have a lot of third parties and independents currently represented in the legislatures of the 50 states. And as a consequence, um, whoever is in charge of those legislatures can also help tip the vote and make it either easier or... Tip the criteria, the vote for the criteria of how to get on the ballot, and make it easier for, uh, for example, uh, what they view as the competition to the opposing party to be able to get on the ballot. So, for example, if you have a, a Republican-dominated legislature, they might say, "Well, we want." Um, people to be able to challenge the Democratic Party's uh, candidates more easily. And so we would like uh, minor parties um, that would siphon votes, quote unquote, from the Democratic Mm -hmm. uh, Party and vice versa. If you have a Democratic-controlled Congress, they may want to make it easier for um, parties um, to either retain ballot access or to be able to develop ballot access by making it easier for uh, challengers to uh, the Republican uh, the, the yeah. Republican Party. So mm-hmm. you can uh, you see that the the two parties uh, in the state legislatures can write the rules, keep the rules. A particular way, or facilitate more competition. It's not necessarily in their interest though to facilitate competition if they like the way it's running for them now.
0: Yeah. I think you wrote in your book, and, I, and maybe it was in your book I've read so many things lately, but about Ross Perot kind of um, uh, I think it was your book where you talked about, uh, I think the Bush campaign wanted Ross Perot to be in the debates because their calculation at the time was that that uh, this third party would siphon votes off the Democrats and therefore, um, you know, provide more votes for the Republicans. So in that case there, you have a situation where, yeah, um, one of the established parties really did want a third party in there, but was using more as a chess piece, not really as a as some sort of virtuous thought about having, you know, let's have more parties involved in the political right. system.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, if- Right. It, 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 the motivation is not necessarily because everybody believes in, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom uh, and, and everybody should be able to have a voice. That's not necessarily the motivation that's being gamed, obviously, for uh, to a political uh, benefit or detriment. And um, what you had... Uh, With Ross Perot, and and let's talk a little bit about the Commission on Presidential Debates because Mm -hmm. I think that's um, a good example. Ross Perot was the has been the only third party or independent uh, candidate since the um, since uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates has been able to control uh, the presidential debates since 1988, and so you've had all these elections where uh, uh, no. Minor party or independent candidate has been able to participate because the commission, which is a nonpartisan organization here in Washington D.C., where uh, it determines the criteria for who gets to be on that debate stage, and of course having that kind of exposure to the American public exactly when. Uh, most Americans start to pay attention to the debates uh, around a la- uh, or the presidential election around mm-hmm. Labor Day, for example. Um, it, it can never really be replaced in the same way, um, either by going around to every state and giving talks, or unless you have your own channel and you're <laughs> you, right. you able to get tens of millions of people to watch you, uh, 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 but most people tune, tune in to the presidential debates i want to say a couple of things there's an excellent book written by george farah on this called no debate in the history of the presidential debates because a lot of people are confused and think that well maybe the league of women voters still runs it as they used to uh but that's not the case and so this is an organization that was birthed in uh, uh with two leaders from the democratic party and the republican party originally uh, led the commission and uh, they set up the rules to benefit the Democratic and Republican candidates, and has set the criteria at a point where you have had no one outside of the two parties who have been able to uh, break in since Ross Perot.
0: Mm-hmm. That's true, and um, yeah, this this committee uh, commission on presidential debates um, that's. Um, you wrote pretty extensively about that in your book as well. It was it was pretty interesting how they not only uh, excluded any third parties, but um, in in your personal experience, watching um, um, Ralph Nader try to get into one of these debates, just as a spectator, um, was not even allowed on the premises. It was they were they were enforcing their their anti third party rule so uh, um, so much at that point that they didn't want anybody even in the audience that was a third party. That was interesting to me.
1: Yes. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, the, the campaign uh, then went to court over that. Um, and there's a, there's a clip of it in a, in a, by a, a, a documentary about Ralph's uh, career called an, an Unreasonable Man. And uh, you can see how... Uh, uh, you know he he wanted to do um, he had been an invited guest of a media program and had a ticket to a third uh a, a rather a, a a viewing room that was not the actual auditorium of the debates but mm-hmm. they weren't going to even let him there uh, onto the campus um at that particular debate and so uh, you know it, it shows the lengths to which uh, the commission was Quite opposed to, um, or its representatives, um, uh, quite opposed to having uh, third parties uh, on the premises or in. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in any way, being able to participate. Right. But, of course, uh, the campaigns, uh, people, I, I think, learned about that. And um, and I, I don't think, though, so that, you know, that's had any impact on their criteria <laughs> in mm-hmm. terms of allowing people in, even though the majority of the people at the time wanted both uh, Pat Buchanan and Ralph Nader in the 2000 um,
0: debates. Yeah. And I noticed that you used the word nonpartisan when you talked about the Commission on Presidential Debates. And what I find very interesting is that the words nonpartisan and bipartisan are kind of used interchangeably these days, where people say it's a bipartisan yes, commission. Yeah, a but... bit
1: of a pet peeve.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. I hit a nerve, huh?
1: <laughs> yes, uh, you, uh, you, uh, people think that as uh, oftentimes uh, a commission or an organization or whatever is referred to as bipartisan, and therefore uh, everybody should be thrilled that it means that it is not in the pocket of one or of the two major parties. But uh, as a society, I think we've become conditioned to interchanging those uh words and and I see um, when somebody i think I wrote about this in the book that when somebody says bipartisan, it's just like nails on the chalkboard to me because it it totally wipes out all the other all the other parties, minor parties, third parties, I don't even like those terms, right, but all the other parties uh and independents who should be able to be considered. And what is whatever is being uh, discussed. So uh, a, a nomenclature is important. And so I'd like to go back to what you talked about, and and I, I use the phrase too as an example of how uh, the legislatures uh, would consider siphoning off votes. I don't like that concept of you're taking votes away from one of the other parties or candidates or whatnot. Oftentimes it's expressed in the uh, pejorative term of spoiler, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas I view uh, the fundamental uh, objective of being able to run freely for office as you must earn the votes of the American people. They are not pre-assigned to one party or to another party. They are not pre-assigned to one candidate or another candidate. It's everybody has to compete for these votes. Uh, And to then say, well, they fall into just this party or that party, and so anybody challenging it might, quote, take votes away from or siphon votes off or become the spoil in a particular election, is just uh, uh, a viewpoint that reinforces the concept that we only have two parties, and those are the "quote unquote" legitimate ones that are allowed to participate, and thereby everyone else who's not in the bipartisan makeup of those uh, elections is therefore somehow a fringe or uh, an, or not a legitimate contender uh, within the particular. Race and that I think gets reinforced when people use the term bipartisan as opposed to nonpartisan or transpartisan or other kinds of uh, wow. uh, verbiage that uh, that indicates that hey we're not a country of two parties the word party is not in the Constitution. And uh, though we quit, and, and certainly when the federal's papers were written and whatnot, people did not imagine we would be just be two parties and try to avoid that. Though it quickly uh, delved, um, it, it
0: quickly became into, you
1: know. that. It is still, you know, you can get to a point where you have, uh, and I think we're. Um, Uh, we're seeing it, uh, especially with, we haven't even talked about gerrymandered districts, or Mm. uh, where you have people, uh, even of the two parties, not challenging uh, another party because they think of elections as foregone conclusions. And so if we're going to view elections as foregone conclusions, why would you have them? Uh, We need to make the rules fair for participation. And and I think a competitive uh, democracy or democratic republic, as I like, you know, most people use uh, mm-hmm. that term. And uh, that's why I like certain organizations. I serve on the board of the Center for Competitive Democracy at org. I like Fair Vote. Uh, I like Represent Us and No Labels and others who are trying to expand the dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. And you had asked me at one point about um, uh, is it are we doing are we doing a service by expanding that dialogue I think so uh, no. and and I'm not endorsing any particular organization but uh I, I do think that having more people understand how the rules of elections work and being able to work for not just one particular uh, party uh, and allow more people to participate is a good thing
0: yeah yeah, it, uh I know I I believe Fair Vote was around um back when you wrote this book, but there's other um yeah, there's other places you mentioned like represent.us or there's this thing called the Unreg Summit. Um are these are these getting any sort of traction uh these days? Um are you are you seeing it making a difference?
1: I do, and I and yes, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Fair Vote. I, I uh the executive director Rob Ritchie I've known for uh, a long time, and they have put out a lot of information, uh, and uh, I admire that they continue to uh, look for ways to improve um, uh, our electoral process. And one of the things that FairVote has been a strong advocate of is ranked choice voting, mm-hmm. which allows for um, which allows. Uh, for people to vote for candidates without worrying that by voting for a candidate as opposed to what they might consider um the their least worst candidate mm-hmm. that they would be able to have the votes counted and that the majority winner the person who wins 50% plus would win the election. And I encourage people to go to fairvote.org dot org and to learn about ranked choice voting. But I do think that that concept has moved forward in the last few decades. And one of the reasons is because uh, you've seen that um, in the two thousand and sixteen election, you had um, you had again what happened in two thousand and what happened in our earlier history in eighteen seventy six and eighteen eighty eight. You had the winner of the popular vote not uh, become the uh winner of the white house or the right. the, uh, the president right mm-hmm. um, the presidency so uh... more people you know, in this in these last two decades, we've had two elections like this, and I think people have become much more aware of how the Electoral College works. Although we still have a long way to go before people understand that they're voting for electors who then vote, and it's not a direct vote uh, for the presidency. But I also I think you have uh, people looking into uh, is there a way to be able to take into account the preferences of the American voters, and so you have uh, you have people proposing, for example, the National Popular Vote plan. You have people proposing ranked choice voting. You have uh, people suggesting that we should have more uh, representation being in Congress. And that's um, a, another book that just came out recently uh, by Lee Drutman. Uh, is called Breaking the Two Party Doom Loop: The Case for Multi Party uh, uh, a case for multi party democracy. And so uh, I think you have more people imagining that we could operate our elections differently. Certainly, people are saying, wow, after looking at 2000 and Florida, which was eye opening for many, uh, that uh, it's important how we register people to vote. It's important what we count as a vote. It's important uh, how. The the voting rolls are maintained or purged. Uh, uh correctly or incorrectly, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's important that people get the correct information and don't have information that is uh, telling them that the vote is on another day. It's important. Maybe we should be talking about why we're still holding elections on Tuesdays. Uh, It's important in terms of determining who should be able to participate. Should we enfranchise uh, people who have served terms as felons, or should they be permanently disenfranchised? These questions are being asked. Uh, And in a way, in the last two decades that I don't think we really had uh, national conversations about, but More and more people are looking at uh, what I would call the election perfection of the machinery, and certainly after the Iowa caucus. And uh, uh, people are wondering, do we have uh, machinery we can trust and that we know how to use? And are we confident as a country Mm -hmm. that we will actually have our votes counted uh, correctly and that our votes do count. In other words, what kind of procedures do we have in place uh, to uh, maximize the participation of the American voter?
0: Yeah. It's interesting. uh, Going back to your book, Ian, um, you talked about the same companies that make ATMs, or one of the companies that makes ATMs also makes the voting machine. And so uh, do we accept with these ATM machines any sort of uh, mistake or any sort of um, um, doubt about what it's doing, um, as opposed to our votes. And it just seems like a lot of people accept the fact that, well, some of these votes couldn't be counted. Some of them were counted incorrectly or some people were disenfranchised. Some people were turned away at the polls. That makes a huge difference. It, it it's, it's a much larger difference than I, I believe people realize. Um, thousands of votes yeah. don't get counted. Yeah.
1: billions so. of votes. Uh, 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 are sometimes lost. And, mm-hmm. and so, uh, wh- well, one of the things that was, uh, um, there was an attempt to fix with the Help America Vote Act, which uh, name in and of itself should uh, signal alarm bells uh, mm-hmm. or trigger alarm bells in terms of how far we have to go, uh, is that, uh, you know, we have to have uh, provisional ballots so that uh, people who are not necessarily uh, correctly uh registered or improperly uh, struck from the the voter rolls are able to be able to uh, you know cast a ballot and then the discussion can you know the 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 proper determination can be made uh, beyond that point right there standing in in the election line right Right. so there's there's um, uh, the importance of being able to have Proper tracking but not also turn away people from the polls without having had the opportunity uh, to vote I made the point in the book that we would never tolerate a system um, that uh, where we had ATMs that uh, that didn't dispense the money or dispensed incorrect amounts right. <laughs> even for slight percentages right no. uh, that would considered intolerable but we tolerate in the marketplace Uh, the political marketplace, things we would never tolerate in the economic marketplace. Uh, For example, um, making it uh, one of the criteria of the Commission on Presidential Debates is that you have to have 15% uh, in five polls or more in order to participate in the presidential debate. Now, what if we said to... A company, uh, I'm sorry, you have to have 15% of market share before you're allowed to advertise <laughs> or yeah, something exactly. like that. You can't even imagine those kinds of restrictions in the economic world. So we tolerate restrictions in the political world that we would never tolerate in the economic world.
0: Yeah, uh, that's...
1: Including def- uh, defective machinery, defective processes for who is able to cast a vote and defective processes for counting
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I know back in the 2000 election, there were a lot of people that were just uh, simply disenfranchised. And, you know, what do they yeah. talk about? Uh, they talk about Ralph Nader, but I, I'm like, no, this <laughs> all the disenfranchised voters, um, they were struck from the polls for no good reason other than it was basically a mistake. They had the wrong last name or something like that and yes. this was a lot of people that really um pulled that vote one way or the other so it's um,
1: well you know you bring up 2000 of course i've answered that question mm-hmm. now more than once in the last two decades, uh, but uh, as I point out in the book, is that everybody who, who was on the ballot for president in Florida in 2000 received more than the 537 votes that were ultimately com- um, determined to be the difference between right. uh, George Bush and Al Gore, and uh, so you they just uh, the the meme just became that Ralph somehow had Nader had um, uh, been the cause of whether one or the other presidential uh, candidate for the major parties uh, was the victor in a complete vacuum, without considering all the other factors that go into who becomes uh, president of the United States. And in that particular election, it was not just the the voting uh, rolls; it was also, uh, as it is in any election, the position of the candidates, who turns out to vote from the pro- from the parties, uh, mm-hmm. whether you're mobilized your base. Uh, and in that particular election, you had a situation where you had the Supreme Court intervene yeah. <laughs> five to four in a decision uh, that determined whether or not uh, the Florida Supreme Court's decision about how votes were going to be counted or proceed to get counted um, uh, would be allowed to continue. And so you had uh, overwhelming uh, factors in that process. And it's not because one minor party or independent uh, uh, received more than 537 votes. They all did. So what are you going to say? You're going to say that you can't have anybody but the two parties on any ballot? Right. I'm sorry, that's not how the United States works.
0: Well, that uh, you know, they got to look for someone else to blame other than the system that they've built, right? So they, they will they will point to someone like Ralph Nader who, um, who just fair. It wasn't fair at all to, uh, to pin any sort of blame on him, but that's, um, that became a, a convenient way to, uh, for the Republicans and the Democrats to explain this away so they could maintain their duopoly. Um, well, it we kind of probably need to wrap this up pretty soon, but I just sort of want to uh, ask you, uh, I mean, I could talk to you for hours, but uh, that's um we're, really up against the time here. I was going to ask you... Your
1: listeners might not be as patient. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true.
1: And and I'm sure you have other guests,
0: so... Well, no, um, yeah. Um, Just before we go, though, I really want to ask you a a final question here. Um, What actions can our listeners take today that will make a difference in our effort to reclaim a true democracy from the Current crop of, well, call them American oligarchs, but but really, maybe, but it might be a bit too harsh. But what can we do to reclaim our democracy at this point?
1: Well, my uh, favorite proposition to this, uh, and in terms of uh, having a a functioning democratic republic, is that we all have to wake up and look in the mirror. Uh, What are we each doing uh, to participate or to facilitate? the participation of people in power and do we have easy systems that make it uh possible for people to participate uh in our in our governance I and mean, that's the whole concept behind the consent of the governed is that we know about uh, what's going on and that we have informed uh consent where we say this is who we want to represent us at any particular Um, in any particular office. And I really view voting as a byproduct of people already engaged in their families, uh, at the kitchen table, in their communities, in their counties, in their states, who who understand uh, who represents them, whether they're doing a good job of it or not, and uh, and being able to understand how do uh, we participate in power in the United States. Uh, too often, people have a diminished sense of their ability to affect uh, change, to affect the course of history, and they think and are taught in schools that history is you know something other people make and do, and uh, that there you know there's this figure and there's that figure and there's this figure. There are a whole lot of unnamed figures who have had an effect. Uh, in the development of the United States and how power um, uh, is distributed in the United States and how we make the rules that we consent to be governed by. And I think that begins every day with looking at what are we doing to help facilitate that kind of participation.
0: Well put. I like that. It... it I think you're right, a lot of times when you're when you're learning in history class about all these things, it's all these these people that seem bigger than life, really. And when you look at individuals who have made a difference out there, um, they tend to be just normal people who are put into perhaps extraordinary um, conditions, and they do make a difference not because they think someone else should, but because at some point they decide to step up and uh, and do something. As little as they may think it may be at that point, it's really up to the historians at some later point in time to decide how significant it was. But um, it all comes down to the individual, doesn't it?
1: Individuals, individuals, and in groups—individuals uh, who uh, who you know are uh, looking to find a way to help enfranchise you know, the U.S. Uh, voter and people to participate in power. And uh, and that's and that, and I wouldn't even limit it to the United States, right? Um, there are people, uh, there are a lot of cross-border efforts that are happening in order to enfranchise uh, participation in power.
0: Right. Very good. We've been talking with Teresa Amato, author of the book Grand Illusion, The Myth of Voter Choice in a Two-Party Tyranny. Teresa was the National Presidential Campaign Manager and in-house counsel for Ralph Nader during his campaigns in 2000 and 2004. Teresa, I want to thank you for stopping by this evening and chatting with us.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. It's been my pleasure.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in, see what we're all about, and get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.